Genesis chapter 3. We intentionally spent quite a few weeks in Genesis 1 and 2 because we wanted to really linger on um, the way things are supposed to be. Um, and so we, we dug in there for, I don't know, a month and a half, I think, uh, in chapters 1 and 2 because, as, as we've said, they give us the blueprint for what's going to be. And we want to, during these Sundays of Advent, spend time in chapter 3 of Genesis, which explained to us why things are now not the way they're supposed to be. Um, and as I said a little while ago, we want to linger here uh, for a little bit and think about how deep the darkness goes so that we understand why we need Jesus to come as the light of the world. And then on Christmas Sunday, we will gather here for worship, um, and we'll look at Genesis 3.15 in more detail. I'm going to reference it today a little bit, but we'll, we'll have a short, a short sermon on that Christmas Sunday to think about how Jesus is the promise, he's the glimmer of hope in all this chapter 3 darkness. So that's where we're headed. Um, next Sunday, I want to remind you that uh, one of our missionaries, Stephen Jones, who is with Surge in London, will be in town next weekend, and he's going to be with us, and he's going to be preaching um, from First uh, John chapter 2, which is the passage a passage that goes very well with what we're going to look at today. It's that passage that says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The, remember the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Um, uh, a lot of folks like to connect that passage with uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So um, I don't even think he intended it to be that way. That's just the passage he said he was going to preach. So, um, So come back next Sunday. He'll tell us about uh, their ministry in London, and he'll preach for us. Um, so that's where we're headed in the next few weeks. Um, would you stand with me and hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 3? I've only put in there the first seven verses, but I want to read more um, to give you a, a little more context. I'm going to focus on those verses, but we need a, a little more of the context, so I'll read more than what's there. Hear the word of the God who loves you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. <clears throat> he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat any of the tree, eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, uh, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to, the, said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then he goes on to pronounce the curses for this, for the disobedience of the serpent and the man and the woman. Um, and I'll, we'll save that. We're going to get to that in the next few weeks. But let's go to verse 21. <clears throat> and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Before I pray, I, I want to say there's, there's just no way I can say everything that could be said here. So um, if I don't cover something and you have questions, get together with me. We'll talk about it. And, and we, we'll be coming back to some of this in the coming weeks as well. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, your word is uh, amazing, and it gives us clarity about ourselves and about you about the world in which we live. Would you, Holy Spirit, come and do that for us even today? Help us. This is a very familiar passage, um, and it, it's easy to, um, to let it glide past us because we, we believe we know it so well. Would you help us to, to think uh, your thoughts for us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, several of you know that uh, our our sweet dog Charlie, uh, we had to put him down on Thanksgiving night. Um, he was with us for eleven years, and uh, I was tempted to bring a picture and put him up there, but I didn't think I would be able to make it if I did. Sweet boy Charlie. Um, our time with him, especially on Thursday, was, was bittersweet. Um, and there was a lot of sweetness because uh, we were able to remember and hold him and cuddle him, which he didn't normally let us do very much, so we got to enjoy that. Um, it was sweet because it was a taste of the way things are supposed to be. Um, the way it was supposed to be 
in the garden was that people would care for God's creation. And God's creation, God's creatures, would give people joy. And that's, that's what we experienced with Charlie for 11 years. We took good care of him. He lived like a king. Um, but he gave us so, so much joy. So much joy. But it was also um, a taste of bitterness because we tasted what it's not supposed to be like. Cancer got the little fella. Um, we found out three weeks ago. And it was earlier than we expected to lose him. And we tasted the bitterness of the hurt, the tears. And there's a hole in our family. Now, there was a time where I would be sitting out there and thinking, dude, that was a dog. Uh, you got to get over yourself, man. There's, there's bigger things, worse things happening in the world. Um, but I was wrong back then. Because Charlie was a, a taste of God's goodness and grace to me our family he was the second dog that I've had to put down and the first one was Luther little mini dachshund and Luther we had to put down two days before we got Charlie um, and I remember when I took Luther I just took him by myself um, When the, the vet handed me his little lifeless body, left the room, I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I told Christine about it later, and she said, you were, you were sobbing about more than just the loss of Luther. There were things going on in our life at that time that were very deep and hard and painful for a very long time. And she was right. There's something about the loss of Luther that tapped into something deeper. And I think that's the same, the same as with Charlie. It's making me think as I look at this week at Genesis chapter 3. Charlie is a taste of the shattered shalom that we learn about in Genesis 3. Shalom is that Hebrew word that we translate it as peace, but it means so much more than peace. Shalom is basically chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. It's the way things are supposed to be. And Charlie was just a taste of how things were supposed to be and how that shalom was shattered. And, but we're all experiencing. I just got a text this week from, um, from Bryan College and uh, one of their freshman volleyball players uh, a young woman and her father were killed in a car accident on Thanksgiving Day. Um, I, a couple of weeks ago, sat with a friend that I think I told you about who lost his 23-year-old daughter in a car accident. And just listening to him wrestle with God over what's going on. And, and friends, we could go on and on this morning about how things are not the way they're supposed to be. You feel it in your, your families, your jobs, your marriages, uh, your friendships, 
We see it on the news all the time, war between nations, turmoil, turmoil within our nation. Uh, there's conflict everywhere in the workplace and home, in churches. There's abuse of power. There's racism. There's human trafficking, sexual abuse, corruption everywhere. And Christine was just telling me the other day that she saw something about um, these, these online groups of cannibals. People getting together on social media to support each other's people-eating habits. As the hymn says, we live in lonely exile here. And if each of us was honest this morning and we'd turn off our phone for a little while and we'd stop our getting and spending for a little while, um, if we'd stop and just listen to each other's stories for a little while, we would hear a groan underneath it all. Oh, come, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, please. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and put death's darkness to flight. God, please come, Jesus, come. So I need help. I need help to understand what's going on around me and what's going on inside me. But I also need hope. I need hope to know that the mess that's outside me and the mess that's inside me is not going to stay a mess. Um, I need hope to know that that though what God did in Genesis 1 and 2 has changed, I need hope to know that God hasn't changed. And that's what the people who first heard Genesis 3 needed as well. They needed that help, and they needed that hope. They were asking, remember, this is the, the second generation out of Egypt that's getting ready to go in the Canaan, and they're asking, so, okay, Moses, we've heard your Genesis 1 and 2. What happened to God's good creation? Because we're not experiencing creation as very good right now. We've, we've been in slavery in Egypt, in hard labor, uh, no freedom to worship our God. They, they drowned our baby, boy, our baby boys in the Nile River, Moses. Where's the very good that God made? And then we took this journey through the desert. And Moses later described this desert as the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. And in that desert, every Israelite except for Moses, Joshua, and Caleb died. What happened to God's good creation? Why is life so hard? Why all the suffering and pain? Why do we all die? So, friends, when it, when it seems that everything around us and in us is not the way it's supposed to be, we need help to understand why, and we need hope to know and believe and trust that God will remain who he is supposed to be for us. So let's, let's look at that a little bit here in Genesis 3 this morning. First, let's get some help to understand why things are not the way they're supposed to be. Um, two thoughts under that. We have inherited God's enemy, and we've also inherited Adam and Eve's rebellious nature. 
Uh, we've inherited God's enemy. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, God has an enemy. And therefore, we have an enemy. Uh, Revelation 12.9 calls this serpent, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So we know who the serpent is. But friends, one of the things that will help us understand why things are so hard right now is to understand that there are many in the Bible, we don't have time to get into all the places, but the Bible says that there are many spiritual forces of evil, not just that one. Many spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that are opposed to God and therefore are against us. Um, You think of uh, Job chapter 1 where the council comes before God and Satan asks if he can go and torment and tempt Job. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 6 saying, You need to put on the whole armor of God and be strong in the Lord so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We kind of like to skip over that part because it's weird. We're not sure what it means. But the fact is, there is a spiritual realm in which there are evil forces who hate you because they hate the one who made you in his image. They cannot destroy him, therefore they're coming after you and me. We have inherited God's enemy, and and I want to ask you this morning, how aware are you of that? When you think about uh, the problems that come up in your personal life, whether it's at work uh, or, or relationships or in your family or, or in the church, um, do, we, do we tend to say, I'm going to put the enemy suit on that person and that person and that person who's involved in this situation? Well, Paul is saying we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There's something else going on, and we should assume at all times that the enemy wants to destroy us and our relationships with one another. Um, Our enemy wants to make us uh, doubt God, and so he's going to make things as difficult as as possible. Now, now there's this danger. So do I look for, is there a demon under every rock? Uh, No. C.S. Lewis was very wise, and he said there's two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. He says, one is to disbelieve their existence and just ignore and never think about it. And the other is to not only believe it, but feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, that it's all the devils causing all these problems. He said, and the devils are equally pleased with both of those errors. So here's what I would encourage us to do so that we can kind of understand what's going on and why things are not the way they're supposed to be. I would encourage us to be aware of the enemy, but be awed by God. Be aware of the enemy. He's there. He's at work. They are there. They are at work. There's multitudes of them. 
But don't fear them. Be awed by God. As 1 John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now this enemy's aim, as we're going to see here, is to get us to doubt God's heart and then disobey God's word. And look what he says. And he says to Eve, he starts right off by confusing the facts about what God said. Did God actually say? He's already introducing doubt into her mind, attacking God's own ability to communicate clearly. Did God actually say this? He's trying to confuse the facts about what God said. And then he, then he turns to contradicting, flat out, contradicting the truth of what God said. You will not surely die. I know God said you would die. You, you're not going to die. He's attacking God's character at that point. God's a liar, he's saying. And then he goes on, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he's creating doubt about God's good heart. It's an attack on God's good purpose for them. It's an attack on God's love for them. God's holding out on you. He's not really for you. Why would he withhold this from you? And we, um, we hear that uh, attack from the enemy all the time. He's trying to get us to doubt God's heart. And so, friends, I want to ask us this morning, where in your life right now are you struggling to believe that God is for you? Where are you struggling to believe that his heart towards you is good? You have an enemy. Your family has an enemy. Our church has an enemy. And he's ruthless. And he hates you because he hates your God. And he hates your dependence on God. He hates for you to think God is good. It absolutely drives him insane. So we've inherited God's enemy, but we've inherited Adam and Eve's rebellious nature. So they succumb to the lies. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve's rebellious nature that we've inherited at least has these two things about it. They doubt God's heart, and they disobey his word. And we do too. We doubt God's heart. We believe the lie that he's not giving us something we need to have. He's not giving us something that we need to have. Yes, the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, but God had told Adam they could eat from every other good tree in the garden except that one. Eve didn't bring that up. 
and neither did Satan. He wasn't going to mention that in chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Remember, the serpent's question was, did God actually say that you cannot eat from any tree of the garden? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Satan's trying to make God out to be stingy, but God is clearly not stingy. He is generous. His heart is giving them, look at all this garden, this world of goodness. Every tree is yours, not that one, but every other one. And they're all good for food. One author said, Satan changes God's positive invitation to eat of every tree, with the one exception, into a negative prohibition designed to cast doubt on God's goodness. Adam and Eve trusted the serpent instead of God, and they wanted more. The giver and his gifts were not enough. So we, we doubt God's heart. We doubt that he's... Not, we think that he's not giving us something we need to have, but we also believe the lie that he's not telling us something we need to know. The tree was, was to be desired to make one wise. Eve believed the serpent's lie was a, uh, Eve believed the serpent's lie about God's heart. The serpent said, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve believed that this tree was going to give her not just good food that God held back, but also the wisdom and knowledge that God was holding back for her from her. There's something he was holding back that she thought she needed to know. You ever think you, you if you just knew, <laughs> if God would just tell you something, explain something to you, You'd be fine. Everything would make sense. And all of this, all of this doubt of God, um, the phrase, when the woman saw, she saw the tree, was good for food, a delight to eyes, uh, desirable for wisdom. She trusted her eyes and not God's word. Do you ever do that? Trust what you see more than what he says? We live with that nature in us all the time, and it explains a lot about why things aren't the way they are. So we doubt God's heart, and it leads us to disobey God's word. She took and ate the fruit. She gave it to Adam, who was with her. He ate. It was a willful act of defiance against God's word, against his instructions. His instructions were, enjoy all that I've given you. Enjoy me and all that I've given you. But this was a willful reliance on themselves to take and taste something that God had told him with his own words not to take and taste. It was a disobedience born out of dissatisfaction with God and all that he had given. And I'm so familiar with that in my own heart that I, I disobey out of a dissatisfaction with God and all that he's given me. I want more. 
because he's not enough. But now let's give Eve the benefit of the doubt here. She desired the fruit because it would make her wise, okay? In some sense, it would make her know good and evil. I'm not sure how. I'm not sure what that means, and there's a lot of disagreement about it. So, but in some sense, she would know good and evil. It would make her wise, she said, she thought. But here's the benefit of the doubt part. Doesn't God want us to have wisdom? I mean, doesn't Proverbs 8 say, wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with wisdom. And then in that same chapter, wisdom personified says, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold. Shouldn't we desire wisdom? Isn't that what Eve was doing? And then doesn't God want us to discern between good and evil? Doesn't he want us to know what good is and what evil is? Psalm 34 says, turn away from evil and do good. How can you do that if you don't know it? Isaiah 1 says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. So is it the knowledge of good and evil, something that God would want us to have to be able to discern between the two? Well, there's, there's at least two issues here. The first was, the first is, there's apparently a kind of wisdom and a kind of knowledge of good and evil that God thought was not good for Adam and Eve to have. And so he prohibited it. So whatever that was, God, yes, desires for us to have wisdom and to discern good from evil, but there's a kind that he doesn't want us to have, and so he said no. But secondly, it's not that God is opposed to Adam and Eve having wisdom and the knowledge to discern good from evil. The whole rest of the Bible tells us, desire wisdom, discern good and evil. But God is opposed to their trying to get wisdom and that knowledge on their own and apart from him in their way and not his way. That's what's at issue here. What's at issue here is they will not submit to the will of their creator king who loves them. See, Proverbs also tells us how to get the wisdom that God wants us to have. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. Again, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Job takes it a step further. He says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So by taking the fruit that God said not to take, Adam and Eve showed that they did not fear the Lord and therefore did not have true wisdom. They did not want to trust God to give them wisdom. They did not trust God's word to be enough so that they could discern good from evil. It was God who would tell them what to eat and what not to eat. It was God who by his word would reveal the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. And they said, no, we will not have God telling us what is wise and what is good and what is evil. We will find out ourselves. So what's at, at the bottom of all this is the essence of the problem with taking and tasting the forbidden fruit was that they did not trust God, and so they would not obey his word. Simple as that. Now, at this point, a lot of us are like, obedience, man, that's a, a 
Obedience, that's, that's tough. That's obey God. That just sounds so unrelational. But the obedience that God is, wants from us is not just rule following. It is relationship. The obedience that God wants from us is a rest in a relationship with the one who rules you for your blessing. It's not just, God's not just arbitrarily saying, don't eat from that tree because I told you so and I don't want you to. No, it's, will you trust me? Will you trust my heart is for you and not against you? Will you trust that I know what's best for you, that I know what's rest for you? And will you rest your heart in your relationship with me? Will, will you allow the giver and all the gifts he gives you to be enough? Or will you want more? So imagine if you could fully trust yourself to someone who had your absolute, untainted, unquestionably best interests at heart. Whom you knew would only and always do what's good for you and cause you to flourish and thrive. If they ruled you, you could rest. And this is, this is what God wants from his people. It reminded me of Psalm 131, which says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. It sounds kind of like what Eve was doing at the tree. Occupying herself with things that were probably too great and too marvelous. The psalmist says, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. A weaned child uh, has learned to be so satisfied in what her mother has provided and so sure that her hunger and thirst will be satisfied by her mother again that she rests on her mother. And she doesn't fuss. That's not what Adam and Eve were doing. And that's not what my anxious heart was doing at three o'clock this morning. And let's not, you know, we pick on Eve, but let's not forget Adam. Okay? Where was he? Um... You know, for a long, long time, I used to think, I'd read this passage and I'd think, well, you know, of course, Adam was at home with his feet propped up watching the bears versus the lions. Um, And uh, Eve came in from her shopping spree at the Garden Mart. And she said, hey, look, honey, look what I found in the produce section. And he ate it and he's like, that's pretty good. Why are you naked? Um... That's not how it happened. What does it say? She took of its fruit and ate. And he also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Adam knew God's word. God was the one who told him, told Adam. He had to have told Eve later. 
not to eat from that tree and that they had every other tree. God, he, Adam knew God's word and he didn't speak to his wife or the serpent. Adam was the priest and he was supposed to cultivate this garden temple. Adam should have reminded Eve of God and of God's word to cultivate her relationship with him and her place and purpose in the garden. But he was silent. And as the priest who was supposed to guard the garden temple, Adam should have spoken to the serpent. He should have said, and this would have been very appropriate, get your hell out of here. Or he should at the very least have just said, what are you doing? And crushed the serpent with the heel of his foot. Let's, let's, let's get this out of here. He was supposed to guard the temple. And he didn't. Friends, we could talk for hours about uh, how this applies to marriage relationships, but the fact is all of us are, in a sense, supposed to remember God's word and speak it to one another. Um, And I have time after time after time been silent and afraid to speak what I know God has said. And people have suffered for it. My wife, my kids, you. So we're like Eve and we're like Adam. We reject God's word. We don't remember God's word. We don't speak God's word. Friends, God has given us Genesis 3 to help us understand why it seems that everything around us and in us is not the way it's supposed to be. But he's also given us Genesis 3 so that we would have hope that God will remain what he has promised he would be. And so this is, let's go there. (laughs) Let's, Let's inject some hope on this first Sunday of Advent. Genesis 3 is given to us so that we would hope in God. Here's here's reasons in chapter 3 why we can hope in God. Genesis 3.15 says, this is God speaking to the serpent, and we're going to come back to this, so I won't spend a lot of time here. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right here in the midst of the darkest moment in the story, God offers light and hope. And he says, there will come a man, another Adam, who will overcome Satan, who will overcome sin. And he will be wounded to do it but he will win. Genesis 3.15 promises us that Jesus, the last Adam, would come to do what Adam and Eve should have done. Jesus wasn't tempted by Satan in the middle of a lush garden when he had a full stomach. You remember? Jesus was in a wilderness after 40 days of fasting. His hunger and thirst were at peak. 
Jesus defeated Satan by speaking and obeying the word of God, including when he said to Satan, quoting from Deuteronomy, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is what Adam and Eve did not do. And after being tempted three times, Jesus told Satan what Adam should have said. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see, Jesus trusted the heart and word of God for us in our place in the wilderness. Adam and Eve rejected the will of God in the Garden of Eden by eating from a tree, but Jesus, the last Adam, said, not my will but yours, Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was hung on a tree for our sin, not his. Adam and Eve crumbled under Satan's temptation at a tree, but Jesus, the last Adam, crushed Satan under his nail-pierced feet on a tree. First John 3 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so this is why God's people longed for the first appearing of Jesus. And this is why we celebrate Advent, because we long for his second appearing. We long for the time when, as Revelation 20 says, that that dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil who deceives, will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and he will be tormented day and night forever. We long for that day. And that's why Jesus came. So take heart, Mountain Fellowship. Your enemy's end is coming soon. He's already defeated, and greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. What else will God continue to do? God will continue to offer grace to sinners like us who reject God's word. Look, look, there's two. There's several in chapter 3, but I'm just going to point out two. Uh, in verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and, his, and for his wife... Garments of skins and clothed them. So he offers grace to sinners by covering their shame. The Adam and Eve's coverings of fig leaves were inadequate. Um, And the people of Israel who first heard Genesis 3, who first heard it, when they heard this statement that God covered them with the skins of animals, they would know, because they've been living in this sacrificial system for so long, they would know that the only way you get covered by skins of animals is for a sacrifice to shed its blood. They understood that these sacrifices renewed and guaranteed that special union with God and with his people that was there in the beginning. And as one writer said, with the sentence given, God does for Adam and Eve what they cannot do for themselves. They cannot deal with their shame. But God can, and God will, and God does. So friends, if he offered them grace, he will offer you grace and cover your shame. And then he offers them grace by restoring them as priests. This is fascinating. I had never read this before, this same verse. The words garments and clothed that are used in Genesis 3 are the words that are used later in the Pentateuch to describe the priestly garments. 
particularly for Aaron as the high priest. And Leviticus 7, 8 says that the, the skin of an animal offered for sin or guilt atonement was reserved for the officiating priest. So uh, the priest who sacrificed your animal to cover your sin could keep the skins and make garments out of them. Friends, what does that mean? What is, it, what is God telling Adam and Eve? He's saying, I'm covering your shame and I'm restoring you to your priesthood. Friend, your sin cannot keep you from being the royal priest that God has called you to be in the places he's put you. Jesus has covered you. Jesus is in you. You are God's royal priest. So until God comes back to finish making all things new, uh, things are still not as they are supposed to be. So what do we do? Um, Hebrews 2 helps. Hebrews 2 says, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Jesus. In other words, at present, we do not yet see everything as it's supposed to be. We do not see yet complete shalom. But he goes on, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we may not at present see everything in subjection to Jesus as it's supposed to be, but in this book and at that table, we can see Jesus being everything that God is supposed to be for us. We see Jesus tasting death. He took up his cross and tasted the death that should have been ours because we, in our dissatisfaction with God, took and tasted what we thought would give us life but only brings death. One of the writers I read this week said that this whole language of take and eat was changed by Jesus tasting death for us, drinking the cup for us. Now we take and eat Jesus. He is our tree of life. Well, I close with this. Um, back to Charlie. Advent reminds me of Charlie. Um, if, if Christine was in the kitchen, Charlie was at her feet. Um, Charlie was a living picture of Advent hope. Uh, because he, at one time, he had tasted that something good that Christine had provided. <laughs> and he knew that if he was ever going to taste anything like that again, it was only going to come from her hand. And he was there at her feet again and again and again, watching and waiting and longing to take and eat whatever his good goddess <laughs> would give him. Father, we come now to your table, um, hungry and thirsty admitting and, and tired of tasting and drinking from um, things that don't satisfy. 
And we come and we watch and we wait this Advent at this table and at the feet of Jesus and say, please, drop something good from your hand for us, Lord. We are so desperate for you. We're so hungry. We're so thirsty. Thank you for inviting us to take and eat. Thank you for being our tree of life. So now would you meet us here at this table and feed us, we ask, so that we would not doubt your heart for us and we would not disobey your word to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.